Let's begin with why is tumor lysis syndrome and other adverse events um, of significant concern in patients treated for CLL? You know, why specifically TLS? So tumor lysis syndrome, just to level set, is basically a complication of treatment for uh, hematologic malignancies or some other cancers, such as CLL, Mm -hmm. or also a complication of high tumor turnover in patients who have a lot of disease. So in chronic lymphocytic leukemia, in some patients who have high tumor burden, whether it is defined by significantly high white count or bulky nodes on CAT scans or in the body, um, they are at higher risk of uh, what we call tumor lysis syndrome. What that means is as you treat these patients and as the tumors shrink, the cell debris of the particular cells could as they break down, they get deposited in several organs causing severe complications, such as the kidneys causing acute renal failure, such as the joints causing arthropathies and gouts, and so forth, electrolyte imbalance and and, and as such. So I think it's very important as we treat patients with CLL who have high tumor burden uh, to recognize the potential complication of tumor lysis syndrome because we need to implement preventive measures to diminish the possibility of tumor lysis syndrome emerging. Tumor lysis syndrome actually has no treatment. You can't treat tumor lysis syndrome. You you provide supportive measures. It's really supportive care. You treat the underlying cause. You replace uh, fluids. You give electrolytes. But there's no actual drug to treat tumor lysis syndrome. The tumor lysis syndrome is essentially treated with supportive measures and with preventive precaution. Are there standard of care measures for TLS based on, like you said, if it's in the joints or the kidney? Or yeah. Is there a standard approach to, to treating or preventing? Yeah, I think the first measure is to recognize patients that are at high risk of developing tumor lysis syndrome because these are the patients that you need to implement these preventive measures. That's the first thing. Um, Because if there's a very low risk and you're treating with an agent that is unlikely to cause this problem, then you probably don't need to do much. But if you identify a patient at higher risk of developing TLS, then yes, uh, it's aggressive hydration. So patients need to receive normal saline and aggressive hydration. And for some older patients who may have borderline cardiac function, you probably have to be careful how aggressive the fluid hydration is because you want to make sure that you don't overload a patient with too much fluids. You treat patients with um, uh, medications that prevent uric acid synthesis, such as allopurinol. So oftentimes before you start therapy in a patient who has higher risk of developing TLS, you give patients allopurinol. And in some acute states, as well as very severe uh, possibility of developing TLS, you give a different drug called respiricase. And respiricase is a more potent drug that could prevent and treat tumor lysis syndrome, which is really important uh, in this setting. So these are the the, the steps that we usually do. Identifying the high-risk versus low-risk patients for the higher risk, aggressive fluid hydration, implementing these therapies, and lastly, I would say alkalinizing the urine. So um, by giving sodium bicarbonate, and the idea is by alkalinizing the urine, 
you actually prevent the formation of uric acid crystals, and that could reduce the possibility of kidney damage. Do you want to jump into the purpose and design of the study? Why did you decide to include patients from both the community in academic settings? Was that a deliberate choice? Can you speak a bit to the design of the study? Sure. So the study really um, attempted to look at the incidence as well as how TLS is being managed in patients with CLL who were treated with venetoclax outside of the clinical trial setting. I tend to believe that this is what is what defines the real world, right? I mean, obviously, whether patients are in clinical trials or outside of clinical trials, they are being treated in the real world. But essentially, we wanted to look at patients treated outside of a controlled setting. And this was chart review of patients treated within the U.S. and outside the U.S., regardless of whether they were treated in the community or the academic setting. The underpinning of that is that... Um, It is possible that patients in the academic setting, they may be watched closely. Maybe the expertise in academic setting allows physicians to recognize TLS faster and implement therapies faster versus the community. So there was really a a deliberate thought into the fact, can we actually tell whether patients in the community versus academia are being managed differently in terms of TLS? Uh, uh, given the fact that obviously some patients um, who are seen in academia could be highly selected, uh, more difficult to treat patient population and so forth. But that's really the goal. The goal was to see if there's any difference in management and approach between academia and community, which is a legit question to ask. Your results suggest that venetoclax is well tolerated by patients with COL in in both settings and may also be tolerable uh, when paired with other agents as well, you know, combination regimens. Um, Was this a surprise to you? Or how did this result relate to your, you know, your preconceived hypotheses about this trial? Yeah, very good question. First, I don't think it was really clear to us what we will find outside of a clinical trial setting. Um, I think that um, I probably my assumption was that uh, we will see more patients with TLS in the community versus academia, and maybe we will see in totality more TLS outside of clinical trials compared with what has been published in clinical trials. Part of that uh, preconceived hypothesis, if you will, is related to the assumption that these patients outside of a clinical trial setting, maybe they are sicker, maybe they have other comorbidities, Um, Maybe they are not watched as closely as patients in clinical trials, and the lack of that might lead to the emergence of TLS at higher frequency than patients who uh, were not. But this is not really what we observed. We actually observed, you know, kind of in terms of the incidence, uh, was um, pretty much similar to what has been reported in clinical trials, which was very reassuring. I think it is very good that we identified that community and academic sites employed the prophylactic measures in a similar manner. So from a patient perspective, this is important, right? If patients are being treated in a community setting versus academic setting, uh, they will hopefully not feel that they are not being treated appropriately when it comes to TLS uh, prophylaxis.
and again the incidence or the percentage of patients who developed this particular complication was similar to clinical trials which is also reassuring so all of these factors were uh, a pleasant finding to myself and my co-authors that we didn't really see any red herring. I, I do think there's always a room or opportunity to improve on the educational aspect of TLS and what can be done always for easy recognition um, and all of these things. So I think that's really important for us. How can the results of this trial benefit the CLL community at large? What audience do you hope to target with this trial and with the presentation here at ASH and what do you hope they take from the presentation? I think the audience largely is physicians um, for this particular abstract. The second cohort would be patients. From physician perspective, I think it is critical to explain what happens to these patients who are not in a controlled setting. Venetoclax is relatively a new agent, has not been used for a long time yet in the U.S. It was approved, the approval was in April 2016, so we're talking two and a half years. So you know, there are physicians who have probably not used this drug and probably there is a preconceived fear into the fact that this agent causes severe tumor lysis syndrome in patients with CLL, I'm not gonna use it, or this is maybe a barrier for me to use it. And from my standpoint, it is possible that some patients are denied a particular effective therapy for the incorrect reason. So having this information and showing them, you know what, the TLS syndrome occurs in less than 5% of these patients in the community and academia. It's, you know, as long as proper prophylactic measures are implemented, as long as you're aware of the actual problem, as long as you pay attention to that. So that's really very critical. For the second audience, which is the patients, um, I think a very important message here, um, you know, remember the majority of patients in the U.S. are being treated in a community setting. They're not treated in academia. They're not treated at universities. So recognizing the fact that this particular complication is not higher in a community setting versus in an academic setting hopefully provides some comfort from a patient perspective and families. So these are the two major messages I would like to convey for these particular two types of stakeholders. I wanted to circle back just briefly uh, and sort of you know, the first question I asked you was just thinking about uh, TLS and adverse events as a whole with CLL. Is there a need for follow-up or further research uh, related to adverse events from CLL treatment? Is there a space for this or an unmet area of need here? Yeah, so I'm always going to say yes to this, right? I mean, I will always answer there's always need for additional research. There's no question about it. But I do think as we are operating always in a resource-constrained environment, in terms of funding dollars for research and whether it's really government funding or even um, sponsor funding from pharmaceuticals, whoever it is, we have to pick which question we try to answer. So it should be targeted uh, questions and targeted approach to the type of research that we need. So complications of CLL is an important part of the puzzle because the patients with CLL who get enrolled in clinical trials don't really represent CLL patients that are seen in the community. They are often younger. Most CLL trial patients enroll patients 60 years of age and younger. And the median age of diagnosis for CLL is 72. 
most patients in clinical trials enroll patients with CLL who don't have comorbidities. There are few that have, few trials have done that, but, but the majority don't. So I think there's always this element of needed research to understand the complications that could occur for CLL patients treated outside of clinical trials. Um, because if anything, this will translate into better patient care and better patients' outcomes. Just wrapping it up here, was there any, you know, uh, parting messages or important points you'd want to make about this, this trial that didn't come up throughout the interview? Any last words you'd like to wrap things up with? Part of the uh, study also, um, which we didn't really elaborate on, um, was looking at whether dose reduction and dose interruption had an impact on outcomes for mm -hmm. these patients, because some of these complications could lead to dose interruption and dose reduction. And what we've noticed is that when clinically required, so if you are dose reducing or you are um, dose delaying or dose interrupting because there's a clinical reason, because there's an actual issue you're trying to address, could be a complication, could be a side effect, it turns out that these patients will not have adverse impact in, uh, outcome-wise uh, for progression-free survival. That's important. So that's a message that I, I don't think we talked about, and I think it's important to emerge from this abstract. I think for this abstract, um, again, the message I would say, it appears that TLS is a complication. We need to still be aware of it. It does occur with venetoclax, but what we have seen in the context of clinical trials is similar to what we are seeing in the context outside of clinical trials. And I think that's reassuring. We are not seeing things worse in the community setting compared to academic setting, and I think that's also very good for patients, especially the ones who are treated in the community. And yes, we just have to continue research and uh, we, you know, again, the, the, the only way this be done collecting data on over th close to 300 patients with venetoclax in Seattle is the excellent collaboration we have had between all of these sites, all of these centers together working to uh, provide data on, this, on these patients.